You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Let me begin with a question. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, when I ask that question, I don't mean to bring a lot of emotion to that question, as you, perhaps you've heard that question asked before with more of a statement than a question, more of an accusation than a concern. Instead, I mean to ask it from the standpoint in the tone of biography. How do you view yourself? That autobiographical way, how do you consider yourself? Biographies are interesting. We think about a conference. When someone is invited to speak at a conference, before the speaker presents, there is oftentimes the host will come and will say, hey, here is the person that's about to speak, and they will introduce something biographical about them, where they went to school, what they have written, where they have spoken, who they are, what they've accomplished. And the, the host is presenting that biography about them in order to essentially implicitly answer the question, here's why we invited them, here's how we think of them, and therefore, this is why we'd like you to listen to them, be worth listening to. This is an understandable sort of courtesy from one party to another party about this third party. How do we biographically introduce someone to somebody else? But biographies are not unique to conferences when people give messages. They're not just unique to publishing with you know, several hundred pages of volumes of material of people explaining their lives. Bios can be found just on your social media account. And a short tagline, how do you introduce yourself? What are you known for? Where did you go to school? What, do you, what have you accomplished? Uh, who are you related to? What are these things that you want to be said about you? And it's interesting, you know, whether it be on social media handles like Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat, you have such a brief amount of space. What do you want to say that when people look at that, they can know something about you? Unlike others introducing you to others, you get to introduce yourself. So I go back to the question, what do you think of yourself? How do you think of yourself? Think about companies who have positions that they've hired now, brand managers, people who are hired, perhaps coming out of some experience in marketing or otherwise, where they want to kind of keep the message of the company consistent in the larger society as to how they're associated, how they're viewed. And the brand manager is all the time interacting with the communication department and other people in marketing. And I was like, here is how we are viewed either correctly or incorrectly. We need to make some adjustments there. It's not just companies that do this though. Surprisingly, it's churches will do this. Churches will have brand managers. How are they envisioned? In fact, surprisingly, perhaps to you, it, it is to me, and I would say disappointing to be more honest, they're actually pastors who have personally hired brand managers, that their presentation would be carefully curated 
that you might make an association of them accordingly and then think as well about them. Today, image is everything. Whether it's simply what you put in a tagline, in a bio, your comments underneath your post, your corporate image. Well, this morning, the talk is titled Insecurity and Identity, Why You Should Fire Your Brand Manager. Insecurity and Identity, Why You Should Fire Your Brand Manager. Sneak peek, you are likely your brand manager and why I want to free you from the prison of what often many women and men live in, which is one of insecurity and confusion about their identity. As we think about our topics this morning, I want to first of all address insecurity. Now, by definition, Oxford defines insecurity as, quote, uncertainty or anxiety about oneself. It's hard to kind of give a more succinct definition than that, even grabbing a hold of that as Christians and see the concern there. Uncertainty or anxiety about oneself, lack of confidence, the state of being open to danger or threat, lack of protection. Think about this someone building a house, someone finds out when they do or get ready to buy a house that they need to do an inspection on the house in order to determine is this house have any liabilities we're not aware of, any liens against the property, any concerns structurally, anything we're not aware of. We, we want to buy the property with sort of full disclosure. What are we getting ourselves into? It's understandable and appropriate. Finding out that the house actually has a concerned foundation. It is, and it's part of it, not uncommon here in South Florida, specifically Miami, part of it built on sand that has not had a proper foundation, and the, the house is tilting, which explains why in certain parts of the house there's cracks in the floor. It doesn't just need new flooring. It's got a problem with its foundation. Well, it would be even more problematic is finding out that the foundation of the house is being built on the part of it on sand is to then say the solution to that will be to pour more sand into that foundation in the hopes that that will stabilize it. But sadly and commonly, insecurity, finding that the foundation of your life has got cracks in it, insecurity is often pumped with and responded to more sand which I will show you this morning what that sounds like in the world's council. Now, in fairness to people about the problem of insecurity, there are different reasons why people have a warped, distorted, incorrect, inaccurate, maligned view of themselves. And I say this as a point of understanding and compassion, not with a tone of condemnation like, how stupid are you? How dare you? How can you not see this? Why can't you just fix this? Just see it and change it. I say this just to be recognizing, not only for yourself, of which any one of these identify with, but also that you might hear this in light of how you think about other people. What are some reasons for people have a warped view, a distorted view of themselves? For some, people growing up have been neglected by others objectively, 
proactively, continuously neglected by relationships around others. In the most basic of ways, the neglect of mother and or father, neglect of relationships around them that has left them in a profound sense of distrust or disconnect to others around them. And so they're always, because of that lack of foundation, trying to fill that in with something else. Probably the most classic example I could give to you because it's so commonly true is women who miss out on a meaningful relationship with their fathers, either not even being physically present or not being relationally invested. And because of that lack, not uncommonly, not promising it's true for every woman, but not uncommonly for many women, they'll go find that substitute from that lack of that father's role or relationship in their life initially through some other boyfriend, through some other expression of finding that. When her security is not being reassured by a loving father or at other times mother, that will perversely and corruptly pursue it in some other place. I mean to only give that as one of many examples of where there has been neglect in the beginning. But it's not just the neglect. Sometimes this insecurity, this warped view can come from not what's not been provided, but what actually has been provided. So secondly, it's this idea of what are the sins that have been done to you by others. So people have wrongly used you and abused you, spoken so corruptly and distortedly to you and unloving that you now have a very corrupt view. It is like the hard drive of your thinking has been damaged either by actions or by words. And as a result of that distortion, there is a warped view. It can be as mild as a parent telling a child, why are you so stupid? How many times have I told you, whatever it is that they proceed to tell them, and repeatedly make the statement that their lack of action is a reflection on their intelligence, which can only be summarized as stupidity. You tell a child that enough, they will begin to role play and believe that's who they actually are in their identity. From as mild as that, as far as words being spoken, to as extreme as actually actions being taken, physical and sexual abuse, that as a result of that, creates a profound sense of a warped view of yourself. So I know of women who have been sexually abused by people in their life, and as a result of that, they have a distorted view that that's actually how they secure relationships with men is by how they present themselves to them physically, and as a result of that, that's how they secure and maintain relationship security is by how they present themselves sexually. Because as a young woman, that's how they gain that relationship with their father, their brother, their uncle, their neighbor. Very common. So from the mild words of extreme, you are so stupid, to the perverse, grotesque, criminal actions taken that are wicked and demonic in their action of sexual abuse, you can see how people can have a wrong view of themselves based on actions committed against them. Third reason for people having a warped view of themselves are examples set for you. The models around you. Could be models with parents, could be models with siblings, could be models with friends, could just be models in the media and kind of pop culture at large. 
The people that seemingly the world elevates and wants you to emulate are the people then that you desire to imitate. Fourth, it's just the very dominant lies of the world. So it's not so much what you see as it is what you hear. The dominant lies of the world, either in frequency or in intensity, continually distort your thinking, even seemingly, as we're about to see in a few minutes, what sounds like good counsel is actually very damaging counsel because it's just replacing sand with more sand. It's ideas of self-love. And then fifth and final for our purposes this morning of some reasons why people have a warped view of themselves is just a sinful preoccupation with ourselves. There is no more common person that we are inclined to think about than ourselves. We are the person we wake up to every morning. We're the person we go to bed to every day. We are the person we're with every minute of the day. And so understandably, and at times regrettably, we can have a sinful preoccupation with ourselves. And I just want to say again, recognizing I'm speaking to a room full of women, I do not mean in any way to be heard that this is a gender-specific sin. I only mean this morning to give some specific applications and illustrations in light of my audience this morning, but this is as equally common for men as it is women, though the manifestations of it might differ. So now, secondly, what are these causes? Well, let me boil them down to two kind of causes of this. Number one, an inaccurate view of ourselves. An inaccurate view of ourselves. Biblically speaking, low self-esteem is an ability to see ourselves, excuse me, an inability to see ourselves the way God sees us. So we're going to get into the second part about identity. So an inaccurate view of ourselves, when our self-image is primarily shaped by wounds or lies, things done to us or things said to us, the pain is real and damaging. And we just have to start there honestly on why this is so common. And the good news is the Bible has an answer for it. God absolutely desires to restore our self-understanding by aligning it to the truth of his word, not to the desires of our heart. I want to be very clear there. God desires to realign our thinking to the truth of his word, which is wise and perfect, not to the desires of our heart. Now, I don't mean to act like or to imply that those are always contradictory, but sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. So we need to rightly respond to what's known as low self-esteem with biblical truth and affirmation. That means we do not stand in front of a mirror and repeat positive statements to ourselves about ourselves. And we'll see why that's so wrong, but why that kind of thinking be so common. Secondly, the two primary causes of insecurity, first one is inaccurate view of ourselves. Second one is an inordinate view of ourselves. So one's inaccurate, one is inordinate. Inordinate, this idea of overly obsessed with. The second cause of insecurity that does not often get addressed is ironically a part of the problem that's presented as part of the solution. 
And this is where I want to tease this out for you ladies because I want you to be able to identify it when, you comes across, when it comes across your way in the future. What we need is not to think more highly of ourselves. What we need is to think of ourselves less. This is the nature of what humility is. Humility is not looking in the mirror and telling yourselves bad statements about yourselves that kind of like, you know, pop the balloon of pride. Humility is to think of yourself less. So to say it differently, it's not to think less of yourselves, it's to think of yourselves less, if I can frame it like that as you understand. So in other words, you're just not so self-aware, negatively or positively. It's not the conversation you want to go to. And there's tremendous freedom in that. To be free of me is to be free indeed. But that's a prison that's hard for many men and women to escape, hard to escape. And that's what's the problem, I think, at times with a lot of times that happens. David Pallison writes the following, the reason for self-preoccupation The reason self-preoccupation causes insecurity is that it raises the stakes on dating, parenting, working, and serving by turning it all into a referendum on our worth. Every slight, every rejection, every awkward interaction must be about us. And such a focus is crushing, end quote. In other words you begin to see the world obsessively as being about you. What did that look mean? What did those words mean? What did that post mean? What did that comment mean? What did she really think? And you're like, I have, I hope good news for you. No one's thinking about you as much as you think they're thinking about you. Because honestly, they're probably making the same mistake you are. No temptation is overtaken except as is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. They're too busy thinking of themselves and what you think of them. So why don't we all just laugh at ourselves and relax? Right? I mean, you just see the prison of this. We're worried about what you're thinking about me. And if I was to like read your mind, you're worried what I'm thinking about you. But the only reason I'm thinking about you is because of what you're thinking about me. And like, what's happening right now? Like, we are a room full of, like, morons. It's my lack of intellectual vocabulary there. That's the problem with much of the popular Christian teaching. When most messages for people, especially women, are about beauty and self-worth, we gradually get the idea that Jesus came to earth and died simply to help us like ourselves. I want to say that to you again. The problem with much of Christian popular teaching on this topic is that we get the impression that Jesus came to earth and died simply to help us like ourselves. God loves you. We're going to have a clear lesson on that on identity. But his thoughts are more than just about you. The Bible prevents a different view of these topics. Let me give you an example. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. The context, understand text in their context is important, otherwise you make them a proof text. 
the context of Ephesians 5, verse 29 is Paul is talking to marriages, husbands and wives, as a manifestation of one of many relationships in the church, of what it means in Ephesians 5, verse 18, about do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does Spirit-filled living look like? In verse 22, he talks to wives. In verse 25 and following to 31, or 30, he talks to husbands. And in verse 31, he brings them both together. In the middle of his commenting to husbands about husbands loving their wives, he makes this passing statement that I don't want to pass over this morning. I want to just say it because it's important to recognize how obviously, implicitly, the Bible recognizes this. Here it is. Ephesians 5, verse 29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The context is, Paul is telling husbands, hey, love your wives like you love yourself. So like, the Bible always assumes self-love. The, the golden rule, as it's been later nicknamed in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The Bible assumes you're very good at assessing what love looks like as a recipient of it, and it's assuming that reality to then do Now, you might think, oh, but I know people who don't love themselves, and I maybe was one of those people, or am today one of those people, I don't love myself, and, and some people even take drastic actions as an expression of not loving themselves. Um, think of cutting, for example. It's a, not an uncommon response for some people. It's complicated to not be so simplistic. So I want to be very careful as I give an example. It's, it's more than just one reason, but just an extreme example, it appears to be not loving yourself. Like, if you, you obviously don't love yourself, or you wouldn't do damage to yourself. Oh, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. A lot of times what ends up happening is that seemingly what appears to be lack of self-love it's just the overwhelming, crushing thought that life is not happening, people are not talking, circumstances are not unfolding in a way that you believe that they should, that you are so destroyed by and disappointed by, and you are now taking action in a way that is life-destroying, relationship-destroying in a way that's actually an expression of a profound sense of self-love. But it initially appears on the veneer as being lack of self-love. There is a reality to our understanding of distinctive relationships and how we interact with each other that we would love others as the Bible directs us when our default is to ask others to love us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, there could be no greater example of what it looks like to think of others when Jesus says himself, referring to himself, even the Son of Man. So Philippians 2, on the throne, second member of the triune Godhead, creating the world, Colossians 1. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, if there's anybody who's entitled to self-love, it's Jesus. And in his accomplishing of the law, his display of his divine righteousness, his substitutionary work for us, he serves. The problem is that the false savior of positive self-image, it is the image created and sustained by your own assessment of yourself. A godly self-image is healthy and good, but we cannot settle for a gospel with self-satisfaction at its core. 
It may be counterintuitive, but the me-centered gospel cannot give us the freedom we crave. It simply enlarges our burdens and shrinks our faith. That's why God calls us to a bigger story, which is to live for him instead of ourselves. We shift the focus off of ourselves, off of our fears, our appearance, our looks, our success, our even our self-doubt, and we fix our eyes on Christ alone. We encounter the freedom that we were created to have. We finally learn to be free of me. For our text to marinate in, and we'll be in your small groups, look at Philippians chapter 3. If we could talk about insecurity in biblical language, here's how it could be described. Insecurity by biblical vocabulary is putting confidence in the flesh. Putting confidence in the flesh. What you look like, what you know, who you know, what you have done, where you live, what you drive, what you own. Putting confidence in that and then assessing others around you based on that and then turning in your report card as to secure insecure. Secure, insecure, based on that assessment. It's putting confidence in the flesh. So with that understanding, track with me here now. Philippians chapter 3. Paul writing the Philippian church, church he planted. He says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. He's pretty worked up here. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, push pause. He's not talking about cutting. He's not talking about, you know, body piercing. He's talking about people who are saying circumcision is still required to have acceptance by God. You can have faith in Christ but if you want to have acceptance by God, you have to have faith plus circumcision. You have to maintain the Old Testament Mosaic law, so it's faith plus works, okay? Faith plus works. Now this is significant because you can see this even today if you're from a Roman Catholic background, you understand in Roman Catholic theology, it is faith plus sacraments. Those sacraments are the means by which you secure God's grace. There's seven primary sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. So your, your, your hope for God's acceptance is faith in Christ, but not alone. It's faith plus sacraments. Hebrews speaks about how they wanted to go back to the law. Paul is talking to a group of Christians who since he has left them, so think he planted the church, he was teaching them for about a year and a half, he's got to go on to now plant more churches, he writes them later because he's heard teachers have come into the church and said, listen, Christ is not enough. This is a common problem makes his way into the church, Colossae, Philippi, uh, the Hebrews, it's common here in Miami. Who you are in Christ is not enough, 
You need to have faith plus something else. If you have faith plus something else, God will accept you and we will accept you. Okay, so that's the context. Now, verse three. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks, anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he gives a list. Here's his bio. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What a, what a bio at a conference. What a social media tag. Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So there's the trade. There's the transaction. Gives it all up in exchange for knowing Christ. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So it's not about the circumcision, not about obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. From this text, to tease it out, let me give you five reasons why insecurity is wrong. Number one, it makes you very self-centered. It makes you very self-centered. The implicit reality here of this putting confidence in the flesh is, is it, it, it's basically one-upping others all the time. Insecurity is a sign that you are taking yourself, your accomplishments, your presentation too seriously, thinking of yourself too much. Being self-conscious is being conscious of yourself. We are not loving others when we're obsessing with ourselves. We're not in humility counting them as more significant than ourselves. I mean, if you go back to Philippians chapter 2, think of what Christ is doing. He says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or what? Conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, you know, it's the Bible again, assume self-interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The problem with being insecure is that you don't love others, you use others. You use others to build yourself up by tearing them down, 
or you use others to affirm where you need to change as a point of validation, and therefore you have to reach further, do more, learn more, accomplish more. Second reason why insecurity is wrong, it objectifies people. It objectifies people. Insecurity is when you are constantly looking at everybody else as something other than how God has created them and what God is doing in them. There's a profound problem that's been since the beginning of time in how men and women interact with each other. How men interact with women, women interact with men, how men interact with each other, how women interact with each other. Men sinfully objectify women. They see them as a means to an end. This is a sinful display, to be clear in my comments, classifying it in the categorizing it rather than comments of, of sinfulness. Men are tempted to sinfully objectify women. So they see them as a sum of body parts to fuel their lust with, as a sexual expression. This is not unique to women. I mean, unique to men, it can happen for women as well. But track with me here on the way of thinking here. Women, knowing that, but maybe not necessarily objectively thinking of it so clearly, recognize what becomes responsive to men so they then participate in this objectifying. That is how they secure attention. That's how they secure affirmation. It's not just dating relationships to like find the guy or the girl. It can be even done in the context of marriage. It can even be in the context of people who are married to other people but still want to find validation that they're still attractive in the eyes of others who they're not married to to affirm that their spouse is glad they're married to them. The heart is mindfully wicked here. And so women can participate in this, and so they present themselves accordingly as an expression of objectifying themselves because it's participation in this transaction of insecurity. The sin, pride, lust. Now the problem comes, women see other women objectifying themselves for the attention of men, and instead of looking at them with love and compassion, and recognition, man, I feel so bad for her. I know exactly what she's doing because I'm tempted the same way. Instead, a woman will feel threatened by that other woman objectifying herself and she'll want to tear her down because she feels threatened by her presentation of herself. So instead of looking at another as the way God has created them and seeing the temptations of the heart, we actually look at each other as objects for selfish gain or for selfish threat. Gain in what I want to receive a man wanting a woman, a woman wanting a man, or what I want to reject, which is another who I'm assessing is actually accomplishing something I cannot, and therefore I will slander them, I will judge them, I will speak wrongly of them. I will not look at them compassionately, I will not look at them with solidarity, I will not recognize the challenge of what's happening there. I will see her as a threat to me in my own insecurity because she is fill in the blank. I've made an assessment she is ranking higher than I am. She is accomplishing something that I am not. And so I will, in my insecurity, devalue her in order to raise my value. Do you see how common this is? This is happening endlessly. It objectifies people, this insecurity. We have to learn how to view people differently. We have to learn not to see them according to the flesh. See, the problem is, it's not enough to say you and I, for the sake of salvation, put no confidence in the flesh, but for the rest of our life, we're gonna live as if we do. 
I think the temptation for Christian men and women is to think, okay, I know I'm accepted by God, by faith alone, but I'm gonna interact largely in society by works alone. My works or lack thereof, or your work or lack thereof. And I'm gonna put my confidence in the flesh when I rank high, and when I think your confidence in the flesh is higher than mine, I'm just gonna devalue and slander you and talk bad about you. Judgmental, unloving, impatient, lack of gracious. Third reason why insecurity is wrong, it devalues God's view of you and his work in you. It devalues God's view of you and work in you. Paul is saying here, his desire is to gain Christ. He would say earlier on that God is beginning a work and God will complete the work. Verse six of Philippians chapter one, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God, this whole sanctification thing is good. I would prefer, obviously, it be easier than harder. But in the meantime, could you give me these worldly things? I know the promised land's coming, but can we still have the riches of Egypt? This is how we often tempted to think. Jeremy Pierre writes, quote, insecurity is often nothing more than grumbling for better manna. We're sick of adequate nourishment. We want extraordinary flavor. We don't like what God has given, money, position, appearance, personality, and we grumble for something better. Such discontentment is a snare of many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Our dissatisfaction with self is often nothing more than our dissatisfaction with God. Insecurity is not sin primarily because it's an insult to our value, though it is, but because it's an insult to God's wisdom, end quote. Insecurity says a lot more than you and I realize it's saying about what we think of God than just what we think of each other or ourselves. God had created you, who's got you right where he wants you, who is ordaining your life in the most details of ways. He has given you the education he has, the home you have, the family you have, the body you have, the mind you have, the personality you have, and often we grumble plain, like murmuring Israelites, and we live discontent. Instead of owning up to our sin, it would be easier to tear others down. That have something that we like, instead of affirming it, we want to find a way to dismiss them, slander them, talk bad about them. Number four, it makes others your savior. It makes others your savior. So just to review our numbers here, number one, it makes you very self-centered. Number two, it objectifies people. Number three, it devalues God's view of you and work in you. Number four, it makes others your savior. Insecurity reveals that we long for justification from others, not God. People care about your attributes, from your body to your possessions to your friends. But here's the kicker. God does not care. God's love for you is not in any way connected to any of those other things. He didn't care about your mom or your dad, didn't care about your possessions, didn't care about your body, doesn't care about your personality, doesn't care about your mind, doesn't care about your education. He will never love you any more the rest of your life 
No matter what you do and don't do, no matter what you have and don't have, no matter how you look and don't look, then he loves you right now because of Christ. Like your security of God's love for you is so settled, so sure, you can't lose it. No matter how ungrateful you are, he doesn't take it away. He's not like a disappointed parent who's tried so hard to make you be thankful. You won't be thankful. Finally, he's like, you know, I'm going to take that toy back because I don't think you appreciate it. He does not do that. He loves you with an infinite, immeasurable, endless love, not because you're that lovely or because I am, but because Christ, his son, is that earning of that love. Perfect. And all of that favor, all of that righteousness, all of that love has been credited to you if your faith is in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Not in Christ plus your cultural circumcision, your possessions, your accomplishments, your education. In Christ alone. I mean, let's go out for breakfast. Let's, we're done. Like, like, what else is left? Like, like, let's go. Like, seriously, like, to be, do you realize the freedom of that? You're free, ladies. You're free. It doesn't matter what any friend, any parent, any spouse, any child, any neighbor, any person will ever say to you, do to you, not do to you. You are completely free. It doesn't matter what you're going to accomplish or not accomplish, how you're going to succeed, how you're going to fail. It does not matter. You've arrived. You're there. What happens with insecurity, though, is it makes others that Savior. And that Savior never delivers. Never delivers. God loves you enough to make that point repeatedly painfully, embarrassingly true. To basically say to you providentially, how long are we going to keep this up? I never created these other things to be a substitute for me. They're gifts, but you're using them to be gods and they're never going to provide that peace for you. When you see what he says here in Philippians, how he says he is so willing to count everything as loss that he may gain Christ and be found in him. He counts them all as rubbish. He doesn't need them anymore. Now, it doesn't mean that you now become a jerk. Like, you know, I don't want to care about you. You're, what do you mean to me? Well, I'm not impressed with you. Why would I encourage you? They'll just feel your own idols and self-worth. You don't know. You're, you're stupid still. You should be remembering that. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying to recognize the significance of how insecurity is trying to route your security to some other savior than Jesus Christ. We're forgetting the righteousness of Christ that actually makes us worthy. Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. Fifth and final reason why insecurity is wrong. It promises assurance by works. It promises assurance by works. We're acting as if our justification is based on our accomplishments and our attributes. Paul has all this confidence in the flesh. All these things he could claim. 
He says it repeatedly. I have more reason for confidence in the flesh. And he lists off his bio. It's saying, if you do more, you've accomplished more, you've learned more, you can provide your assurance. Friends, your assurance of salvation, your assurance of God's love for you is not in what you've done, it's what in he has done. His care for you. Now, as I think about these five things, you can just see it everywhere. Insecurity is found everywhere. And I say this just in a point of humility to just recognize like, hey, if you feel like right now you are the only person who like this message is for, it is for all of us, okay? Like we are all recovering insecure people chasing our identity and our validation as something other than who God is and what he's done for us. So you are so very normal. And I mean that to just say, because what happens with sin is that sin will often separate you from community if you process it wrongly. It'll make you feel like no one else understands. And I'm just here on behalf of everybody else in the room to say to you individually, you're, you're actually just like the rest of everybody else in the room. And one of the unique things of being a pastor is I actually kind of know that for like almost all people because of how much interaction I do as a shepherd, caring for sheep, and knowing my own heart as well. So pastors, for example, can be some of the most insecure Christians in the church. Some pastors, all of ministry is simply them out working out their own insecurity. They find themselves profoundly insecure, and that's why they need you to attend every Sunday to validate their identity. And if you could maybe sprinkle some like affirmations on top of that, some compliments, that'd be even better. If you could invite some friends to come, that'd be even better. And maybe on top of that, maybe give some money too. Then they could just be like, okay, we are good to go. But then if they can expand that reach of their insecurity into realms beyond their local domain, which is their church, onto their social media, other places by reputation, man, that could be really, really good. So I just say this to say, this is not like unique to the pew amongst a few of you. It's common to every one of you, and it's common from the pulpit as well. Pastors can be tempted in the most profound ways to be very insecure. I say this as a point of solidarity to say how common it is found, even in the details. Why did you wear what you wore this morning? How much of that decision was maybe tied to what other people think of what you chose to wear? Why did you say what you said already this morning? Why will you say what you say in your discussion group to come? Why do you not go where you go, or not go where do you go where you don't go? That was confusing, I'm confused myself. Why do we post on social media or don't post what we do? Why do we think the way that we're thinking? Why are we trying so calmly to curate an image of ourselves that we're not quite sure who we're trying to convince? Others are ourselves. When God, the omniscient one, Psalm 139 says, I know everything about you and I love you. Which takes us now to the second part of this, which for the sake of time will be more brief, but it's connected to this. Insecurity leading to the lesson on identity. It is the answer to insecurity in part because it takes you back from the tornado of emotion and culture and confusion to actually answering basic questions like, who are you? 
What gives you your identity? On what foundation are you building your sense of worth? Think about just the recent Marvel series and other like movies creating superheroes, superpowers, super identities. This is all about how we could know ourselves. But there's two important aspects to identity that I want to just highlight for you this morning. And they're going to come from two key texts. Number one is your sense of self. And number two, your sense of worth. When you think about your identity, as you think about your insecurity, think about your identity now, ways that we can get our identity wrong. I've spoken on this, so I'll just mention these briefly. How you get a sense of your identity off of your roles, your accomplishments, how other things can identify you. And you, you see this even in society, how people interact. Some would say we name our identity. Others would say we discover identity. The common way to think about our identity is we look inward to find it. But that's not how the Bible speaks of it. Let me go back to the same text I referenced to you last time, if you were with us, and if not, you can just hear it for the first time. Genesis chapter 1. The very beginning of all of mankind, God speaking within the triune relationship says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Every tree with seed and its fruit that you shall have them for food. What I want you to recognize is, not only did God create us, verse 26, let us make man, but he created us in his image, and in verse 28, he blessed us. And then it says he specifically gave us direction and responsibility. Every person in existence, Christian and non-Christian, a practicing Muslim, a practicing Hindu, a devout, avowed atheist, devout, avowed atheist, every human being on the planet has been created by God in the image of God and therefore is intrinsically a person of dignity, regardless of how they self-identify, regardless of what they believe or say that they believe. That now means not only how I interact with others, but also how I think of myself. Think of my three sons. I have three sons. Their last name is Bancroft. They are in the process of moving out of my house into adulthood and beyond. I don't know what's beyond adulthood, but somewhere out there. It's not uncommon, sadly, to have children disavow themselves of their relationship with their parents. Sometimes it's because things that the parents did while they were home that they are later as adults reacting to, kind of delayed reaction and saying, I want nothing to do with you. 
And sometimes it's in response to decisions that the children have made themselves now as adults that they do not want the relationship with their parents in their life to have any type of condemnation or conviction about, and so they want to separate themselves from their parents. It's a tragic reality of probably one of the most painful things godly parents have to go through. And honestly, I don't know what will happen with my son's future. I'm optimistic, two 18-year-olds and a 21-year-old, but I'm also aware, even seeing in my extended family and many other families, of that possibility. But here's what I know. No matter how much my sons want a relationship with me or not, avow or disavow themselves with me in the future, they will always be my sons. That relationship is settled. Good or bad relationship, it is settled. They are Bancrofts. And as I like to tell them, like it or not, they're going to always be a Bancroft. They can change their name. It won't matter to me. They'll just be some name on a piece of paper. They're still going to be a Bancroft. When God creates, he has put his stamp on every single person he's made. They are made in the image of God, after his likeness, with dignity. Most of his children, and I want to be clear, when I say children, I mean to localize that term in the sense of familiar language, not what I'm about to talk about in the New Testament. Most of his creation disavows themselves of any relationship to him. And they live rebelliously against him. Denying he exists, or admitting he exists, but choosing alternate ways to try to live life apart from him. That does not change their origin. That does not change who they are. That is profound in its implication as to both identity and security. And for you as a Christian, that's profound because that's the baseline, not only for humanity, that's the baseline for you individually in your identity. Think about the significance of what it means not only to be made in the image of God, now I want you to see how it gets better. Think of an infomercial that says, but wait, wait, there's more. From Genesis 1, let's go to John 1. From one of the earliest records in the Bible to now one of the earliest accounts in the Gospels, go to John chapter 1. to see it rich in all of its ways. I'm gonna to read to you verses one to 14. One of the earliest followers of Jesus, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I'm referring to Jesus now. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Turn again to Jesus. 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And here's the key. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13. Who were born not of blood, not by their family background, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what have we seen here in this text? We've gone from creation, Genesis 1, John 1, gone from creation to now salvation. So for those of you ladies who are in Christ, you're not simply made in the image of God, in his likeness. You are, through faith in Christ, a child of God. Now, what's so profound about that is what it says in verse 13. You're a child of God, to summarize verse 13, simply because of his grace. Simply because of his grace. It is nothing you have done, I have done, your friends have done, your family has done, that anybody has done except his grace that has made you a child of God. That's how you became a child of God. She goes on to describe his ministry as being of the Father, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, this lesson itself is full of grace and truth. You, do you realize that? Do you hear what's happening? This is, this is the word being presented to you, which is who Jesus was, the word being presented in person, who is telling you the truth of who you are and the grace that that means, of how you don't have to live, of how he loves you, how he cares for you. Significance of this Think of how this contrasts from society. In the, in the past, by way of contradiction, or contrast rather, in the past, think about just in society, you made money and had sex to build a community. You made money and you had sex to build a community, marriage, children. But today's age, you make money and you have sex to find an identity. And God's saying, both are wrong. Community with God, fellowship with God, happens through faith alone in Christ alone. You have with God something that no culture, no person can ever offer you. It is the foundation by which your identity of existence and your identity of access to relationship is secured because of his grace. Ladies, I prayed this in my opening words, and I'm going to say this to you again right now, as has been the purpose of each of these four lessons. 
the hope is that this lesson would not only help you individually on whether or not this is where you are right now, this is a timely word right now, or that it might be a timely word to come, that this lesson gets activated later as these words get freshly awakened, the dust gets blown off, and like, okay, what was that again? I need to hear that word again. Not only for that reason, but so that you might be equipped, you might be taught, you might be shown how you can, not me, how you can minister to one another. How you can love one another. How you can open your heart, open the word, and speak words of truth to each other because that is God's design for the church. He gave you this family that you might be brothers and sisters struggling, confessing, praying, and by God's grace, winning, knowing victory. So you're not only not alone in the struggle, you're also not alone in the fight for the victory to come. But just to remind you, your identity is not in how you are doing today or tomorrow or in the years to come. Your identity is already locked down, secure, tightly wrapped and bundled because of Christ. His work, His death, His resurrection, it is finished. It's finished. So enjoy your freedom. Be free. Because that's all God wants you to do, is live in light of your identity and security in Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.